Welcome to Brand Growth Heroes, the podcast that explores how insurgent brands in consumer goods categories are driving transformational growth. Here our guests talk not only about their brand purpose or why, but also how where they play, who they employ, and how they work has driven their incredible success. I came across alcohol-free beer Lucky Saint during lockdown when I was looking for a way to reduce that midweek glass of wine, which was encouraged by the I've had three kids at home all day and I've no idea how teachers do this kind of stress. Founder Luke Bowes started looking for an alcohol-free beer that really did deliver on its promise of all the flavour without the alcohol. But he found that the reality was disappointing. So he decided to make his own. And over a two-year period, he's created a multi-award winning 0.5% Pilsner called Lucky Saint. Luke launched the brand in the on-trade in October 2018 and after only a year, Lucky Saint was listed in over 1,500 venues, including over 30 Michelin star restaurants and casual dining institutions like Dish Room, The Ivy Collection and Honest Burgers. Lucky Saint was the first alcohol-free lager to launch on draft in January 2020 in 50 pubs and bars across London and the results have been phenomenal. In February of this year, Emma Heal joined the business as Managing Director. Emma has worked in consumer goods for nearly 20 years across Europe and Africa, experiencing life at big corporates such as Tesco and Diageo, and also leading the growth of insurgent brands such as Innocent and Grays. Emma is a passionate advocate of championing women in industry, a very involved ambassador for Retail Week's Be Inspired programme and steering group member of The Grocery Girls, set up by Joe Whitfield, CEO of Co-op. Emma and Luke, welcome to Brand Growth Heroes. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Where are you calling in from? Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Jonas. You're so welcome. It's great to meet you finally, Luke. I've met you before, Emma. Um, Thanks a million for coming on. Where where are you today? So we're in White City and uh, we're in the midst of 2021 budgeting. Ah! So this is a welcome break. (laughs) Brilliant. What is the weather like over there? It is absolutely beautiful here today on the Isle of Man. It's grey, raining. Howling. Oh, no. Oh, no. So listen, Luke, why alcohol-free lager? And how did you end up with a beer that's won so many awards and is so different from the other alcohol-free lagers on the market? Oh, it kind of, I guess it started about five years ago. And I was looking at this category on paper and thinking, personally, as a consumer, this is the most amazing proposition. But the reality just didn't live up to what it should be on paper. Okay. And were you, were you personally like an alcohol-free lager drinker or why were you looking for, for one? No. So I didn't even drink the Casper. So, oh, okay. But that was the problem. I, like, I wanted to drink it, but I couldn't find anything that was good enough to drink. And I couldn't find a brand that made me feel good about it. Okay. So that sort of, that became the challenge. It was like, is it possible to brew a good alcohol-free lager? And is it possible to build a brand that makes people feel good about making that decision? So where did you start? Lots of research, lots of Google. I knew nothing about brewing at all. Right. And I don't know, it's one of those things you just kind of, you start and you think, okay, well, if I can just learn this much, if I can just meet someone who can tell me about a little bit more about brewing. And it just kind of snowballs. And I ended up, I spent two years working with six different brewers in three different countries. Wow. Trying to figure out how to make better tasting alcohol-free beer. Now, I'd heard that from Emma. And one of the things that I've been wondering since I heard it is that many brewers in that many countries, is that because each of the brewers that you worked with weren't getting what you needed in terms of an outcome? It was kind of a combination of things. There was one thing that kind of came through it, which was people always wanted to take a shortcut. 
there was always this, you'd sort of start working and be like, well, here's the problem with alcohol free is, you know, it doesn't have enough body in it. So mm-hmm. let's add something else in to like make up for that. Or it doesn't taste quite right. So add, let's add a bit of flavoring in. But that to me just didn't seem right. And like Lager's this beer style that's got this amazing kind of history and heritage to it. It's a nearly 200 year old, but well, Pilsner is now nearly 200 years old. And it's a beer style that's kind of completely taken over the world. Yeah. But everyone was kind of saying, well, an alcohol free, you know, don't worry about, you know, brewing it properly and using great ingredients and, you know, taking the required time. It was all about, well, if we just add a bit of flavoring in here and a few additives there, like I'm sure we can get to something that's good enough. Okay. And how did that make you feel at the time? Were you surprised? Well, I just sort of, I felt like it should be, you know, we should go back and use the best ingredients and we should use proper brewing processes and it should take you know the beer should be like lager lot to lager means to store uh-huh. that goes back to pre the days of artificial refrigeration where they'd, they'd store beer in ice cellars and it would it would mature in those ice cellars and get and begin to taste better and better and better mm-hmm. but these days it takes 72 hours to make beer and i wanted to go back and brew beer in that kind of very just with adhering to the best kind of possible brewing practices. So what does that mean now in terms of how your product is brewed and how it performs versus the other alcohol-free lagers on the market? So well, I went in my hours and days and weeks of research, I found this particular brewer in Germany who I knew made amazing lagers and I knew they had this piece of technology that I really wanted to try. And so I um, actually, I just, I remember it quite clearly. I was still working at the time in a different job and I emailed uh, the CEO of this brewery and I told a white lie. I said, oh, listen, I'm in, I'm in Germany on Friday. I've got this idea and project in, in non-alcoholic beer. I've got to come and see you and tell you about it. And I can't tell you how many hundreds and thousands of emails I've sent kind of prospectively. <laughs> and, um, and he came back in two minutes. And he said, yeah, sure, drop by at one. And I was like, oh, Christ, I need to. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's brilliant. I need to book a flight. I need to get myself over there. I need time off work. Anyway, so I went over there and they, you know, they do, they just brew these amazing beers. And I convinced them to work with me. And and we started working on this kind of very classic Pilsner recipe that's just made with four ingredients. It takes six weeks to brew it. The four ingredients, they're all sourced locally. It's brewed with local Bavarian spring water, which is really, really well suited to brewing lager in particular. Okay. Is that because of the mineral content or or what? For the pH or not that I'd know any of these things? No, no, that's exactly what it is. So beer, beer styles used to be very regional things and a particular beer style would become prevalent in a particular region because it suited the style of water that was there already. Ah, Okay. These days, like you can now, you can mess around with water and you can kind of, you can treat it with chemicals, but this is the local spring water that we brew with. Okay. So six weeks, four ingredients. How is that now? And I know founders, you know, and I get this, never want to diss anyone else's product, but I do think it's really important without naming any other uh, brands out there. How different is that to the way in which other alcohol-free lagers, ones that have been on the market for a long time, are brewed and the products that they have inside them. Can you compare and contrast a little bit without giving names? What can we do? I think there's, so in terms of time, you know, we can see 
beer in general, this doesn't, but this applies to alcohol free because I don't think the best brewing practices have been applied to alcohol free really, but it can take as little as 72 hours or less okay. to brew and it takes us six weeks. And then there are like, you know, you can add flavorings in there, which we'd, we'd never do and we'd never put additives in there. Okay, so basically it's the time that you take and the fact that you don't put any additives. And I imagine you don't need to put the, or you find a way around having to need the additives because you give the ingredients themselves a chance to shine because they are taking six weeks to brew. Yeah, exactly. And you've got this this maturation or lagering process that goes on for four weeks. So the beer sits maturing in a tank at two degrees for four weeks. And wow. during that time, it kind of transforms and develops and you know, it, it becomes it becomes a great beer. So did you know when you, you know, ended up with that first product run or kitchen sample run or whatever it is in the brewing industry where it had been maturing for six weeks, did you know that you'd finally found the product that you were looking for? Uh, we did. I tell you, the moment we found that I sort of, it clicked for me was we immediately started working on filtered lagers. And that's, you know, the lager that you, we all know is is clear and bright. And... The recipes and the products we were getting to, they were, they were, you know, they were good, but they weren't kind of, they didn't really move the game on enough in my view. And then this kind of penny dropped and it said that if the filtration process in brewing is stripping out flavor and body and non-alcoholic beers struggle for flavor and body, then why are we not having an unfiltered beer? Ah. More flavor and more body and more character. And that, the, that was the kind of, that was the moment where it kind of flipped for me and, like suddenly we were like, okay, now this is this is something that I think is really different. So it took someone coming from outside the industry to come in and think about the way in which this has been done for, I suppose, what, 30, 40 years? Is there, how long has alcohol-free lager been on the market? Well, that's a good question. Yeah, probably well, going back to the 80s. Yeah, and so what was right in the 80s, you know, in the Bud Light days and all the rest of it, when everybody wanted unfiltered anything, everything, it took someone from the outside, outside the, the category to say, hang on, why are we doing it this way? You know, isn't that really interesting? I think that's a brilliant yeah. example of why you don't necessarily know just because you're in a, in a job or in an industry for a long time, you don't necessarily, doesn't mean you're thinking about things in the right way. Yeah, because when I just poured this out, so some like the lovely thing, I don't know if you can see that, is that it's just the beer's just got this slight kind of hazy character to it. Hold it up for us now properly, because for anyone listening to this on iTunes or Spotify, we actually are putting this up on YouTube as well, so we can see the product. So, yes, yeah, so it's got this kind of hazy character to it, which kind of speaks to the authenticity that it's made with. It looks almost like, I would imagine, a white beer looks, you know, in terms of cloudy. Yeah, the, light, the light's a little bit funny in here. But yeah, it's just a little bit cloudy. But the, we've all been preconditioned to think that lager should be clear and bright. Mm-hmm. And that, funny enough, that goes back to the 80s when um, the marketing geniuses told us that filtered beer was, was the best thing ever. And actually, it was um, part of it was a cost-saving process because it, it meant you could make brew the beer more quickly. Okay. So you end up with this great product, right? How did you end up with such a gorgeous-looking brand? Before we start talking about how you ended up commercialising it, where does the, the look and feel, the bottle and the label and the brand come from? Where does it come from? So I can't claim like all the, all the credit for it. I worked some, with some amazing people. I met a guy a few years ago called Ben Bilbo, who runs an ad agency called Kamarama. And he's been very kind of instrumental in helping to kind of guide the process. And we've worked with some, we did other ways in all of our original design work. 
But I think the kind of the original, like the, uh, the sort of aha moment was when we realized we needed to figure out what are the rules that we need to play by mm-hmm. and what are the rules that we can break. Ooh, tell us. So the, I guess sort of, and then I kind of think about that in terms of like category, in terms of consumer, and, and then in terms of occasion. Mm-hmm. So tell us about those rules. So the category is like really thinly distributed category, like non-alcoholic beer is 1% of beer sales. So it's this tiny, tiny, thin category that sits all the way across the beer market, but it's distributed nearly everywhere uh, and everywhere sells a few bottles. So if you want to build a business, you need a brand that will work in multiple different outlets okay. and with multiple different consumers. So you can't, it needs to do, I don't know, so we, you know, we spent a long time, our first 12 months, essentially just building in the on-trade. Okay. And we do, we're listed everywhere from like the Connaught Hotel I think I just won the world's best bar a couple of weeks ago, all the way through to Honest Burgers. And so it's having that ability. So one of the briefs in the brand was that ability to be able to sit in both of those camps. Certainly a gorgeous looking brand. I mean, I I came across it in my local store uh, here on the Isle of Man. And the reason purely that I I picked it up was for its uh, gorgeous looking bottle and label. There's something very iconic about it, even though it hasn't been on the market long. So well done. So, so yeah, so like thinking about category and then thinking about the consumer was kind of the next thing and just saying, actually, I think all of the growth in this category is going to come from consumers who are moderating, not okay. consumers who are kind of giving, giving up alcohol completely. So let's talk to the moderating consumer, not the, you know, not, not the, Teetotler. Dana, exactly. So the opening line on the back of the bottle is moderation isn't the dirty word it once was. Okay. Nice. And then the other, the other kind of thing that was, was just around occasion. So what were the, just that fundamental understanding that this is still a beer occasion. People still want a beer. They're just looking to take the alcohol out of it. So we don't need to reinvent. We don't need to reinvent the wheel here and reinvent the occasion. Okay. So those are kind of some of the rules that you need to play by. And then once you've established those, then you can think about some of the ones you don't need to play by and you can get more challenging on and start making the most of kind of being a small brand. So by the time you joined Emma, where had you got the business to, Luke? Where were sales and distribution? Emma, you joined in February, didn't you? So where had we got to? We got to our first 15 months, we won 1,500 on-trade listings. We were in part future brands within Sainsbury's. So we had hundred and about 110 or 20 stores in Sainsbury's that was going well. And then we had this kind of fledgling e-commerce channel that had always been there and always done a little bit of sales, but never been, uh, it, it had never kind of picked up the momentum. Okay. And how did you find Emma? Because Emma, we'll, we'll introduce you in a second, but Emma has a, a fantastic uh, CPG or consumer goods career. Uh, how did you come across Emma? Um, I'm actually going to give my wife credit for it. Okay. Well, one of if I go back one stage, Shalane, our chairman, who's got an amazing kind of track record and career in drinks and specifically around startups, he get, had this insight that just said, you know, Luke, you should try and go and hire someone who is way, way, way more senior than you've been dreaming about. Right. Because if you have the right product and the right brand and you want to scale, then bringing in kind of senior talent at an early stage is, a, is an incredibly powerful thing to do. Was that scary from a budget point of view? You know, I mean, a lot of companies that I'd work with, they think, oh, well, I can, I can only bring in a junior marketing person at this point because we don't have the scale yet. I kind of, I think I just took the approach that once that person or Emma, once Emma was here, then 
it would pay for itself. It would pay for itself. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, well, that's the right mindset. I mean, that's brilliant. You know, I think that's why a lot of companies don't get onto that next stage because it's not, you know, all founders or all entrepreneurs who have the experience to take uh, to take the company to the next level on their own. They often need someone with a different set of experience and skill set, right? Yeah, I think kind of. I mean, the the challenge kind of potentially is around getting comfortable with the fact that someone's going to get know way more about what you're doing than you do. Okay. <laughs> and sort of yeah. and, and bringing that in. And there's a, like, there's a moment where you feel you sort of you peel the curtain back and yeah. it reveals yeah. what's going on behind the scenes. That's that. You've got to be brave to be able to do that. And I think to anyone out there listening to this who's at the stage where they're thinking, you know, will I continue to be the managing director of this myself or bring someone else who knows more about how to do this than I do. That must be the scary fear is, you know, what are they going to think of what I've done so far? Or what are they going to think about how I run this up until now? How am I going to feel about their reaction to things, right? Yeah, exactly. But I'm kind of, oh, I'm I'm thrilled we did it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. If you've enjoyed this podcast so far, then please do share it on social media and take a minute or two to write a review on iTunes. It would make a big difference in allowing us to interview even more super guests with great advice that can transform how you do business. So Emma, tell us about your experience. So you've worked across consumer goods for 20 years, right? Europe, Africa, Tesco, Diageo, and then you led the growth of Innocent in Scandinavia and uh, Grey's in the UK, right? So you have an incredible CV to bring to this beautiful brand and product. Yeah, I think my, my last role was uh, MD of Grey's and uh, the retail arm. So my job was to bring, you know, Grey's into retail, which was just a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. And I think it was a phenomenal success, right? So it was absolute go, go, go. I used, I used to say it was like, you know, launching a startup with rocket fuel. Not 50 million retail sales in three years, or in, a, you know, about a team of 40 absolutely amazing experience. I think for me personally, for my growth, you know, I learned a huge amount about DTC business and how to bring best practice from DTC into retail. Okay. And ultimately how to, you know, how to juggle an omni-channel business and how, you know, you can cross-pollinate and use your marketing um, prowess across channels. So absolutely brilliant. And for any of our listeners around the world who don't know what Grey's is, because I think that's probably important to, to say, can you just describe the Grey's brand really quickly or the Grey's range? Yeah, so, you know, just over 10 years ago, Grey's were complete pioneers in the DTC business. So direct to consumer, they delivered snaps through the post. No one had ever done it before. No one really had bought into monthly subscriptions. Absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal business. And by the time I joined, there were 7 million people on the database. Wow. That's how big it was. UK, distributed to every single postcode. So an absolutely amazing brand. And obviously in the health and wellbeing space, producing wonderful snacks, an amazing brand to bring into the retail environment when people were desperately, desperately looking to snack on healthier food. Healthy yeah, and they're li- like little boxes of nuts and chocolate chips or raisins and then, and then also uh, savoury versions as well, right? In lovely cardboard packaging. Yeah, and just to, you know, to set some context, was sort of 120 SKUs online, but we only bought 12 into retail. But even then, launching a retail brand with 12 SKUs across the sweet it's and safe range was huge, absolutely massive. So, yeah, it became the UK's number one healthy snack within 18 months of launch. And the reason I just wanted to, to bring alive that example is because it's that D2C and retail omni-channel experience that you've been able to use then coming into Lucky Saint as MD, isn't it? Yeah. And I'm sure we'll come on to talk about it with the growth of the business over the last. Yeah. So t- tell us about that. So you came in, where was the business? And then what did you do? What were the first things that you did when you came in? 
Yeah, so I joined in February and the business was on absolute high. So we diversified in format. So launched into keg in January, no other no and low on keg and in 50 venues in London. Mm -hmm. And the team sold what they thought would have been three months stock in three weeks. It absolutely flew. So to answer the question of, you know, do people want an alcohol-free pint of lager? Yes, they definitely do. February, revenues were equaled despite it being a short month, despite it not being dry January. So a brilliant time to join. And actually, beginning of March, we were having a board meeting talking about the faster, faster plan. And then obviously, everyone knows the story. You know, every day of mid-March felt like a year. And lockdown came. 70% of our volume at the time was in the on-trade. And that just oh my goodness. Right, dried up, as it were, overnight. So yeah, a very intense couple of days. How then- did you feel having just you know joined a new business that very, was very much uh, reliant on on-trade and out-of-home sales? And you're thinking to yourself, oh my good God, right? Actually, I felt elated. <laughs> yeah, I just love a challenge. And I just thought this is such an amazing opportunity. I know what startups can do. You know, be agile, go fast. We, Luke and I had a very long day together looking at the P&L, stripped out 65% of the cost, bought it, everything we could in-house. Um, and we had a very clear plan. We needed to protect the brand, protect our people and protect the P&L, which was distribution effectively. So, you know, very quickly realised that this is going to go to direct consumer very, very quickly, as it did. So we just pivoted hard. And uh, there were three elements of our plan. Go fast, which we did. Um, so we immediately pivoted marketing spend into online, into Amazon, into Shopify, our own website, go flat and go flat to us was decentralizing decision-making. So we had a very, very small team at the time. It was only five of us. Scrapped the 2020 objectives, you know, and just had very short-term objectives for everyone. And we love the Jeff Bezos one-way, two-way door way of thinking. So if the decision was a two-way door, i.e. you could come back from it, we just said to the team, just go, 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 make it happen. And obviously, we tried to focus on the, the one-way door stuff, the big stuff. And then the final element was go up. And go up for us was all about retraining. So we very quickly realized we are not the world's expert, despite coming from Grays in DTC. So we had these amazing, amazing, what I used to call 30-minute power chats with some brilliant people in the industry. Literally get them on the phone and say, right, teach us how to be performance marketers. Okay. Go. And uh, we get a lot out of good people in 30 minutes, as I'm yeah. sure you know, Fiona. They were very, very generous. And um, not only did we really, really start to understand the metrics and the, the levers behind what we were doing online, but also retrain the team, right? We had two salespeople that were on trade through and through, train them into how to do grocery and how to go and, you know, build trade in farm shops and all that kind of stuff. We did loads of, loads of training sessions on influencing, negotiating, sales, et cetera. So we really plowed a lot of effort into the team and upskilling ourselves. And then the second element of go up for us was doing it right. So we just realized we had this massive opportunity to really you know, think about the values of the business. And it's when we started our journey to becoming a B Corp, working with wonderful Tom at Greenheart, who's been amazing supporting us to do that. Um, we became the first member of the British Beer and Pub Association that are no and low. They haven't got any other members because they're obviously so taken with Luke's journey and the liquid, which has been amazing. We finally, you know, thought, gosh, we, we, this liquid's amazing. We should probably start um, telling people about it. So we won the Imbibe No and Low Award for the Best Lager. So an amazing, amazing time. And obviously where we are now, you know, the DTC business has absolutely flown. In lockdown number one, 
very, very quickly, we became the second fastest selling lager on Amazon. So wow. <laughs> the only thing that was bigger than us was a 24 pack of Fosters, which honestly was a shock to us as it was to anyone else. So th- let's just focus in on that for a second. How did you do that? <laughs> well, there's loads of tricks. I mean, I think probably Luke better to answer the DTC stuff, but there's loads of elements, right? It's, we call it sort of microscopic growth. So you've got to change all sorts of things to make that happen. And the quality of the material that's online and how you're targeting people and what you're saying, you know, there's a huge amount of um, elements that make that happen. So it's not just one thing like, oh, get your Amazon store right and and then you can be, you know, second after Foster's. I wish. (laughs) But I think it's really important because, because this is something that people out there listening don't necessarily understand, but they want to understand. And it's a slightly scary thing, isn't it? Because you think you start off on the learning curve thinking, oh, well, you know, Amazon, that's easy. Just get your product listed and get them to warehouse it. And then you do that, but nothing really happens. You don't get traction. So then you think, oh, well, I'll just get my store right. And then that still doesn't happen. So what you're saying is, no, it's a million little things, is it? It's a million little things. And then it's also, the, I think the biggest, the game changer is the cumulative effect. Right. It's all about whether your customer comes back and purchases again. Yeah. So you can drive the first purchase, but it's the second, third, fourth, fifth that ends up cumulatively getting getting your performance up. Okay, so even if you do all those millions of little things from a, a marketing optimization point of view, if your product isn't getting repurchase, it won't make a difference. Well, it won't move the needle on the dial of Amazon. I think, yeah, not that's that's the big kind of success for us online. Okay, really, really interesting. So. You could have had a really bad year in terms of sales, right? What were you forecasting to do, Emma? You know, I mean, or, you know, not like in terms of exact numbers, but what would the year have looked like had you not pivoted? And what does the year look like now versus your original objectives? Yeah. Okay. So draft is, draft was decimated, right? You know, with the on-trade closing down, but there's still been many more sales coming through. So the, the pivot to an omni-channel business really happened for us in September when we went from 130 Sainsbury stores to 1,400. So wow. across four different retailers. So that's been hugely helpful is having the, you know, the grocery arm, which is an amazing, amazing awareness driver, like nothing else. DTC has been phenomenal, as we've spoken about. And then obviously we had the wonderful you know, unlocking over the summer. Um, Stocktober was amazing for us in terms of... Um, the on-trade, we got we were the first um, alcohol-free brand to be launched nationally on draft, which has been just incredible. And obviously we're back in lockdown too. So, so in terms of sales or, or revenue, are you doing better despite COVID and all the lockdowns? Are you doing better than you would have done anyway had you not had to pivot and think about the business differently? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I mean, we listen to Shalen a lot. He's our chairman. He's amazing. And he said he looks at 120 odd brands around the world. And he said there's literally a handful that are beating their pre-COVID budget. And uh, we're, in a, we're in a good position. We're in a, we're in a very <laughs> Okay. So I'll take that as it sounds like you're beating your pre-COVID budget, which is pretty <laughs> amazing. So talk to us then about how do you, so obviously you're doing a lot of things right, Okay. What do you think it is in terms of how the consumer experiences your product and not just your product, but your brand through all of the different touch points versus, say, you know, the big guys? How do you make sure that Lucky Saint is a different kind of brand for today's lager consumer versus these big guys who've been around for a long time? Talk to us maybe a little bit about purpose. So I think the the, the interesting thing that we've learned is that nearly every single consumer in this category has been on a bit of a journey to find something that they like 
they've had lots of poor experiences. Mm-hmm. But there's this thread that runs through everything that we do that just says we need to deliver over and above what people expect. So not just from an alcohol-free beer brand, but from any brand full stop. So everything from obviously the, the bottle itself and the packaging on there, the quality of the liquid, the packaging your Amazon or Shopify order will arrive in. Oh, I loved that, by the way. I have to say to anyone who uh, is listening to this, the box that it comes in is absolutely gorgeous. When you open it up, I got such a surprise. And my kids have since repurposed the box for all sorts of uh, houses and forts and filing systems. And you'll understand when you get it, but uh, it's really worth ordering this so you can you can play with the box. So yeah, it's just this kind of belief that the devil's in the detail and everything everything needs to deliver all the way through the kind of consumer experience. The one thing I think we have to, we have to play to what the big brands can't do. So they're, okay. they're doing an amazing job bringing lots of consumers into the category, big recruitment job, huge budgets. Um, their products are inherently, they're, they're all a, it's, all, it's a, always a range extension of, of an existing product. So inherently that feels like a less than proposition because it's yeah. always the, it's the Heineken Zero or the, the Bex Blue or the, you know, there's always, so we, we play to the strength of being dedicated to doing one thing really, really well. Okay. So we stand by that. And then we have to leverage our, the power of being, you know, a founder-led brand and an independent business and a small team who are all super motivated around building a great brand and a great business. So what's the team and the culture like at Lucky Saint? I mean, how many people are there now and what does it feel like working at Lucky Saint? Um, well, I think the vision is really important to to discuss. It's to be the defining alcohol-free drinks brand in the world. And I think everything hangs underneath that. So um, there's definitely, as you've heard, like this uncompromising um, desire to be the best quality. So when, when we're looking at any question, you know, is it category defining? Is that going to be the best that we can be? And it's quite a sort of left brain, right brain way of looking at things. With Number one, we're really commercial. So really important that the whole team understands the PL, they get full visibility. We're very, very open and you know honest about what we're doing because we've got lots of entrepreneurs in the business that also want to learn and learn how to run a business. So whether that's investment decisions. And then the other part is to be generous. And hopefully that, you know, we've spoken about a few things, we're very generous in the way we deal with our route to markets, deal with each other, you know, how much effort that we put into training and personal development. Everyone in the business is, has got equity, which I also think, you know, lends to a certain... That's generous. generous. Um, and everyone feels really part of it, you know. Um, some of the team, well, all of the team took salary sacrifice during the first lockdown. And that just goes to show how much people want this business to, to work. Um, and I think the underlying of, of both of those elements is to be positive. And I know it's quite, you know, it sounds quite trite, but we're very can-do team. So one of the opportunities, we look at things like always, always feeding back with data, insight and action and talking about the so what and the now what. Another element that we always talk about is the William Gibson quote, you know, the future is already out there. It's just unevenly distributed. So we just, because we're small and nimble and we've got an amazing team that are super bright and lovely people, we just want to be at the bleeding edge all the time. So looking for the latest trends, the latest data, like where are people moving to? Obviously, where's, where's the ball on the pitch we talk about? There's a ball there, but where is it? And I think ultimately it, it does kind of feel like a family, which is lovely. You know, we're a pretty social bunch. At the moment, we're all walking to Bavaria. So, 
lockdown too, someone said, well, I got a bit down last time. They didn't work for us at the time. And I said, right, let's set a team challenge. We're like, shall we climb Everest? That's a bit far, but we can walk 800 miles to Munich. So we've got this brilliant app and we all, it just gets everyone out of the house every single day, whether they're running or cycling or walking. And we're getting there. We're ahead of the pacemaker at the moment. So we should finish ahead of time. That's brilliant. Yeah. And I think becoming a B Corp is a really, really, you know, hugely important element to all this. It's just a really nice way of pulling all these elements together. Um, the team talk a lot about feeling very proud to do what we do. A lot of them have come from booze. Most of us are moderators. There's only a few teetotalers in the team, but, you know, feeling very proud to be able to give someone a genuinely delicious alternative to a beer if they want to, mm-hmm. or if they want an alcohol-free beer. So yeah, it's an amazing place, amazing team. Everyone on the bus is awesome. And um, yeah, it's just, it's fun. It is fun. It sounds wonderful. It sounds absolutely wonderful. And if, you know, travel was permitted, I'd be over there to come and have lunch with you all and, and get to know you a little better because you sound like a lovely, a lovely bunch. So look, what's next for you guys? I mean, it's hard to know, isn't it? Because we don't know what next year holds, although there is light at the end of the tunnel by the looks of things or by the sounds of things with these vaccines. What do the next two or three years look like for Lucky Saint? Uh, we're still, we're still so, 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 so early in the journey. We turned two in October Happy birthday, Lucky Saint. Thank you. <laughs> um, so there's an awfully long way. We're still pr- pretty kind of London and Southeast biased, but we've just gone national with draft. We've just gone national in grocery distribution. Right. So the growth trajectory is now going, going to go this way. Yeah, more of the UK and maybe we'll start thinking about a few international markets. Fabulous. And then people keep prodding me and talking about what's the next product going to be. <laughs> That's an interesting one, isn't it? Because do you need a next product when there's so much organic growth to be had just through distribution alone? You know, national market, international market. Is it a stick to the knitting or is it, no, you've got to innovate in any category in order to stay interesting? Yeah, it's kind of a tough one because we. what's been so powerful, I think, has just been doing one thing really well. Mm-hmm. And you know, lager is the most dominant beer style in the world. So if there's a if there's a challenge to take on, then lager is yeah. definitely the biggest one. So that's been really powerful. But the flip side is, we'd probably be a slight, you know, we'd be a bigger business if we had two or three products. But we wouldn't have this kind of clarity of, and, mm. of message and people understanding. I suppose it must come back. It needs to come back to the consumer need, doesn't it? You know, if I look at my beer drinking, you know, I'd have a beer most nights, but it's the same beer every night. I don't, I don't swap around. Whereas I will swap around my chocolate bars, but I will always have the same beer. I will always buy the same bottle of white wine. You know, unless I can't get it, because I know it delivers, and it's really important that moment. It's really important that it delivers for you, isn't it? Yeah. It is. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And, you know, wh- where can you go with beer? Not that, you know, I mean, where can you go with alcohol beer? Maybe the level of alcohol is one way, which probably would be interesting because I would like a little bit of a hit from my low alcohol lager. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be said, having three children, um, and particularly when they're at home in lockdown, you certainly need some kind of extra little buzz in the, in the evening. And I will admit that freely. I'm sure many of you out there understand that need, but I don't want too much of a buzz because that would just be seriously difficult dangerous wouldn't it um what is the placebo effect apparently so if you if you have drunk before and you know what it feels like to drink if you drink an alcohol-free beer you should get that feeling a lot of people do say oh that yeah 
felt good. Yeah, 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 yeah. Listen, I would love to have you guys back on the show uh, middle of next year to find out where you've got to because I think the really interesting story is just how quickly you guys have, are starting to scale and the fact that you're still only London and the South East. Okay, I know that you've gone national recently on draft and, and, and with the Sainsbury stores. There is so much organic growth to be had there. You've proven the need, you've proven the appeal and now it's just about, you know, gobbling up all of those consumers and, and distribution points. Will you come back uh, maybe after next summer and tell us where, you, where you've got to? Love to. Yeah, we'd Thank love you. to. That would be fabulous. Thank you so much for coming on, both of you, and agreeing to be... At first, I was about to say threesome, but that would just be uh, ridiculous. <laughs> three-way, three-way, three-way call and second ever video. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your insights. Luke, you should be so proud, you know, not having had experience in beer or brewing before to have got to, to spend those two years getting this product so right and to have, you know, had that moment of reflection where you realise that potentially the industry was going about it in, in an outdated way. Well done. I mean, kudos. Um, and well done for finding Emma because, you know, it's not every day you come across somebody with a CV uh, and, and leadership qualities as, as strong as someone like Emma Hill. So congratulations to you both for finding each other. Thank you. Lovely to meet you and see you soon. Have a great end of the week and uh, yeah, we'll be in touch. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.